Now we've been spending our time in the book of Acts and looking at the life change that Jesus is accomplishing through these followers even after his resurrection. Remember that the book of Acts begins by saying that the, the prior account, Theophilus, was all that Jesus began to do and teach, implying here now is the book of his continuing work and what we see uh, Jesus accomplishing and saving souls and changing people to be followers of him. And one of the most powerful things that we observe in these Christians is That nothing is holding them back. We see great faith. We see uh, great acts of service like we saw last week in, in Stephen who serves the Lord even to the point of giving his life. Uh, following the model of Jesus. And this morning in Acts chapter 8, we're going to notice three pictures, three models and three images here of how these Christians were not held back and the hope that God had given to them and changed them. The first picture for us begins in chapter 8 in those first four verses that were just read for us. And I want us to really get a sense and a feel for as concise as these verses are, the the gravity and the horror of of ultimately what is said. Remember at the end of chapter 7, you have that Stephen has been stoned after proclaiming Jesus to them, proclaiming that they have rejected the Lord who has come to save them and rescue them. And we're told at the beginning of verse 1 then of chapter 8 that Saul is standing there and he has approved of that execution. We'll get to come back to him, Lord willing, next week in chapter 9 and see more about him. But in approving of the execution, we are told in, in verse 1, a great persecution then arises. And we are told that These disciples are scattered throughout all the region of Judea and Samaria. Everybody is on the run except for the apostles. Verse 3, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Which, I thought about that, you could do a sermon right there. Just notice, you know, Stephen has the hope of eternal life and yet the Christians are certainly mourning over his death. And notice in the very next lines. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I want you to visualize that for a minute. Is here is this morning over the death of Stephen, a great persecution arises, the disciples are, are scattered, and now the picture that is given to us is this man named Saul, who is approved of the death of Stephen, who has been a part of this execution, is now harming the people of God. Please imagine it. He is going into house after house after house. And anyone who is a follower of Jesus, he is dragging them out of that house. And taking them to Jerusalem. Essentially to stand trial before the very Sanhedrin by whom Stephen had preached his message and was stoned by. 
The very Sanhedrin that had Jesus crucified. The very Sanhedrin that had uh, Peter and John arrested. The very Sanhedrin who had the apostles beaten. Taking Christian after Christian. Dragging them from their home. And causing them to be imprisoned and stand trial. I want you to think about, just for imagine, if you could put yourself in those shoes. Ask yourself what you would do. You know, it's such a concise statement that is full of horror. Saul is ravaging the church and he is bursting into homes and taking Christians out of those homes. What would you do? What would be your response? And I want you to notice what it says they did in verse 4. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Are you amazed by that? Saul is leaving Jerusalem. He's going through Judea. We'll see a little bit later. He'll be off to Damascus. He'll, he's going wherever he can go with letters of authority saying, He has the right to take you out of your home. Drag you to prison. What would you do? And yet you notice what they did. That even though they need to leave Jerusalem, they don't stop what they're doing. They don't quit. They don't shut down. They don't stay quiet. They don't run and hide and say, we're never going to say another word about this again. They go preaching the word. Even though Saul's chasing them. Wow. And I just want you to see something amazing about these Christians. That even when a persecution arose against them, they would not be held back. They were not going to be held back in telling people about Jesus. Even though you have Stephen dying, and they have buried him. This isn't just theoretical. They still keep teaching. And one of the things that we are seeing in the book of Acts is that Jesus has so transformed the lives of these people, so transformed their lives, so that even if a persecution were to arise, even if their lives are in danger, even if there is someone like a Saul who has the right to come into your home and take you out by force, they won't stay silent. They're still going to tell everybody about Jesus. They're still proclaiming. They're still sharing the good news. They're still telling the world about Jesus. Absolutely an amazing picture of the kind of transformation that they had. And notice, God had not abandoned them even though they were being persecuted. They weren't supposed to read that and go, well, this means we're doing something wrong. No, they're doing the right thing. They're living for Jesus and they're proclaiming Jesus and their lives are on the line. And they're being praised for that as they go about preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Now, watch how that unfolds. Because you will notice as it says there in verse 4 that they were scattered as they were preaching the word. And we're going to start seeing the, the word of God spread 
all throughout then the various regions to Samaria and further and out to the ends of the earth as you move through the, the, the book of Acts. And please think about if we were to use the, the framework of Joseph from, from Genesis 50 that here what Saul and the Sanhedrin meant for evil, God is meaning for good. That what looks like a negative, what looks like a horror, what looks awful, is God is still accomplishing His work. Even in persecution, even in death of Stephen, even though Christians are being arrested and put in prison, God's using that. God's using that. God's spreading the gospel through what Saul intends to be an evil. What the Sanhedrin intends to be an extermination of this this new sect, this Christianity, God's using. Powerful picture of what God is doing at work, even in difficult times as they were experiencing. And so verse 4, the word is being spread. And here in verse 5 of Acts 8, we read about a person named Philip. We saw him in Acts 6. He's just average Christian like Stephen. He's been one that's been selected to help in the distribution for the widows. And like Stephen, is going above and beyond here. He's preaching the gospel in Samaria. And I want us to, to get a sense of what happens because the attention is really not about Philip, but a man named Simon. And there is a man named Simon there, and we are told there that in verse 9, he is practicing magic in the city, amazing the people of Samaria, and he goes about saying that he is someone great. Verse 10, they're all paying attention to him, the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. Just imagine that. I mean, here is this guy who is able to to do these curious magic wonders that everybody's just awed by. And they're all saying, you got to see this guy. He is the great power of God. He is something. He's amazing. Look at what he can do. And he's wowing them, even from the least of them to the greatest of them. And imagine as that is going on, we are told here in verse 11, everybody's paying attention to him for a long time because he amazed them with their magic butt. When Philip comes preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in verse 12, we're told that they were baptized both men and women. You know, here is Simon who just has essentially this area of Samaria in his fingertips. Magic, wowing, amazing. The, the popular opinion was he's got the great power of God. Everybody is like, he's a somebody, and he's taking that in. I am a somebody. Look at what I can do. Look at these, these acts and these wonders that I can accomplish. I can wow you. I have, I have great power. And yet, when Philip arrives, everybody believes and is baptized. And I think it's worth making an observation before we look at Simon a little bit further of what is told to us there in verse 12 is that belief is always leading to baptism. It always leads to that. 
always the picture of the book of Acts, is that baptism is a response of faith. That is the great picture. And that is men and women who are doing this, people who are able to understand what Jesus has done and have faith in Him, to believe in Him, to grasp their sin and therefore have a response of faith to God. I won't redo the sermon from many weeks ago from Acts 2 about baptism not being a sacrament. It's not just something you do. It's not a checklist, but it is a response of the heart. It is from faith. It is how we're believing in what He has done for us and we are responding in submission to Him. And you see that Philip has that response with the, with the Samaritans that they're believing. And they're being baptized. All men and women there. And what's even more notable is verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. I think this is really fascinating. Because you have that Simon could have gone with Philip and told everybody in Samaria, I know how he's doing those magic tricks. You know, I'm able to do these kinds of tricks, and so let me kind of pull the curtain back and show you why these things are fake and false. You notice that even Simon is wowed. He's like, this is something beyond me. You might remember, perhaps, perhaps not, I, I always find magic interesting, I'm a, I'm a sucker like that. Uh, but there was a TV show for a while that there was this guy called this masked magician. And his whole point of the TV show was to reveal all the tricks that magicians have done in the past because he had the goal of, I'm sick and tired of you all doing the exact same thing over and over again. Let's get something fresh around here. So I'm going to reveal everybody's secrets about that. And here is Simon who likes this attention. He likes, hey, he's the, the great power of God. He, he's somebody great. He's amazing. He, he could have been like, oh, this is just magic. Let me pull the curtain back and, and, and expose Philip for who he is. If that's all it was. But verse 13 says, Simon believed. Now, this is no trick. The miracles that Jesus were, was doing, the miracles that the apostles were doing. Don't let anybody ever tell you in modern history, well, they were just, you know, tricks. Sleight of hand. You know, neat little things that they were able to do. Because that's what Simon is. Simon's one of those guys. He's got this down pat that he can get a a whole nation to believe in him. And if that's all that was, he'd be like, let me show you why this guy's a fraud. But instead, he believes. Text tells us, verse 13, he believes and is baptized and continues with Philip. But something interesting happens. He's watching in verse 13 the great miracles and signs that are being performed. Peter and John come up from Jerusalem to Samaria as imparting miraculous spiritual gifts to the Samaritans there. 
And we see there in verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, you can see where, where Simon's coming from. He's used to having the stage. He's used to having the show. He's used to wowing the people. And this would be another great thing to be able to do. Give me that power also. Hey, Peter, how much do I need to pay you so that you can give me that power also? Because I want to be like the apostles. And be one of those who can lay my hands on people and do these miraculous spiritual gifts like that. And give them to others. I want you to listen to what Peter says. I think for most of my life I've kind of blown over his words and not allowed the real weight of his words to sink in. But listen to what Peter says in verse 20. May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the chains of iniquity. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. Did you catch all the things that Peter just said to to Simon? Here's what I said. He tells him, you're going to perish like your money. First words out of his mouth. May your silver perish with you. Not just, you know, hey, your, your silver needs to get out of here. May you and your silver perish. Whoa. Your heart is not right with God. This is a wickedness of yours. The intent of your heart needs to be forgiven. You are poisoned by bitterness and you are bound and chained by iniquity. If you heard that, would you say, boy, Simon just is never going to recover from this. Simon is clearly fake and false. And listen to the list of what Peter says. May your silver perish with you. You're full of wickedness. The intent of your heart is evil. You are bound in wickedness. You are the gall of bitterness. Which gall of bitterness is idiomatic for envy and jealousy. You get a sense of the problem Simon. Simon has become a part of this for that wow factor. And Peter is putting his finger on it and saying, your heart's not right. But I want you to notice that Peter's response is not. So you need to get out of here, you terrible person whose heart is not right with God, who's bound in wickedness and the gall of bitterness and chained to this iniquity. And, and he, no, Did you catch what he told him to do? Repent. You need to repent. 
I want us to notice that Simon was not held back by his sin. This is no small sin. Based on how Peter describes what Simon has done, you should not read this and go, well, you know, it was just a misunderstanding. No, No, it wasn't. May your silver perish with you. You are bound in iniquity. You are poisoned by bitterness. Your heart is not right. The intent of your heart needs to be forgiven. He's just describing him as wicked through and through. And yet even still, he could repent and come back to God. His sin wasn't holding him back from coming back to God. And it wasn't too much. It wasn't like, well, he crossed the line. You know, I mean, he crossed the line. There are things you can do, but he crossed the line and it is too late for him. It's not what happens. Peter says, you need to repent. And I think this is so powerful to see that our sins do not have to hold us back How many times can we feel like, you know what, I I just feel like a fake in this Christian life. My my sins are too much. If you only knew my past, if you only knew what I've done, and I'm not talking about past like before coming to Christ, even after coming to Christ. Notice this is Simon not talking about years ago. He's a Christian, and Peter says, you're bound in wickedness. You ever feel that way like a Christian? Just a total mess. A total spiritual disaster. That's that's what Peter's calling Simon. But Peter doesn't tell Simon. And so you need to leave. You need to go. You can't have any part with us. You don't belong here. No. You need to come back. You need to turn back to God. You need to repent. It's not too late. You're not held back by your sin. You're not held back by what you've done. There's nothing that you have done is too wicked, that's too great, that's too much, that's too weighty. You just need to repent, Simon. And you see a response of Simon. Verse 24. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. There's hope. It's not too late. And Peter's offering that to him. You turn back to God. Look, I know what you've done and you need to own what you've done. But even though all of that seems to have been false, you can get your heart right with God. And you can get your life right with God. And you can turn back to God right now. And that leads to the third picture. One more neat picture. Philip again, but again not about Philip. Philip though the central character is really not the central character at all. We have a a man from Ethiopia we are told about. He's a eunuch who is returning from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. He's riding in a chariot and... The Lord tells Philip to go to this place where he's at 
And I want you to go and encounter him. And as Philip encounters this this Ethiopian eunuch, we're told that Philip overhears that the eunuch is reading the scriptures. Which always, that's a useful reminder. Anytime the scriptures ever talk about reading, they never think about reading like you and I read. Because how did Philip know where the eunuch was in reading? Except they always read aloud in ancient times. We read in our heads. So you can imagine Philip coming up to the eunuch and hearing. And we're told that where he is reading, according to verse 32, is from Isaiah 53. He's reading these words. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And so Philip goes up to this eunuch and says, you understand what you're reading? He says, no, I need some help. I need some guidance. Who is this talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself? Or is he speaking about another? I love the words of verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. Let's just begin right there. We'll just begin right where you're reading And let's talk about Jesus. You know, I submit to you that he could have been reading from anywhere, from Genesis to Malachi, and he could have done that very thing and opened his mouth and spoke the good news of Jesus. Remember Jesus talking to the men on the road to Emmaus, saying, the whole thing was about me. Everything about the scriptures was all pointing to what I was going to do. And so here is Philip saying, let's start right here. This is talking about Jesus. And as they are talking, you can imagine the discussion about Jesus. And here he had come and what he had suffered and gave his life for salvation of the whole world. We're introduced in verse 36. It just says, they're coming along and there is some water. It says, and the eunuch says, see, here is water. What holds me back? What keeps me? What prevents me from being baptized? And I think it's useful just to ask, why did he ask that? That seems like a strange question. Why in the middle of this discussion of Isaiah 53, if you read Isaiah 53, there won't be anything in there about baptism. (laughs) So where does this question come from? I think obviously a couple of things are clear. One, preaching Jesus includes that. It says he opened his mouth and told him the good news of Jesus. And what we've been seeing through the book of Acts is, of course, everyone responds in faith and is baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. That's all throughout the book of Acts. And clearly, this is part of the the, the message that Philip gives to the eunuchs, such that you can imagine here they're in this this deserted area, and now they pass by some water, and it just generates the question, well, what keeps me from being able to be baptized? Which clearly shows the importance of it. And clearly shows the necessity of it for it to be asked. Why would we be doing this in the middle of nowhere? 
Clearly it has some importance. Clearly it is necessary because the eunuch is asking about it. But think about the question that he possesses now. What is holding me back from being able to enjoy the good news of Jesus? What's holding me back from being baptized? What's holding me back from enjoying salvation? I think it's such an important question because you notice that Philip does not say, well, what you need to do is you need to know a lot more about God. And if you go just sign up with me for a 30-part class about the Bible, well, I'll be able to explain to you all the ins and outs of theology of God. You know, so you good? You got the next 30 weeks available. We'll meet once a week. And in 30 weeks, you'll get to know everything you need to know. What's holding them back? Nothing. Nothing. You have to love it. Nothing. Command the chariot to stop. And let's go down into the water and do this. Oh, it's a beautiful picture. Why down into the water? Except as you see in other places of Scripture like Romans 6 and Colossians 2, this picture of being buried with Him so that you can be raised to walk in a new life. They both go down into the water, come up from the water rejoicing. There was nothing that was keeping Him back. He doesn't say, well, you know, there's a few other things that we need to worry about. Nothing kept him from being able to experience his salvation. I told you there were three pictures, so let's hit these three pictures now. In terms of application, what I want us to see from this chapter is that we ultimately need to set aside whatever it is in our minds that is holding us back that is keeping us from enjoying this kind of relationship with Jesus. For going backward through the text, what was holding the eunuch back? Nothing. And I just want to ask, Jesus gave his life for you. What's holding you back from giving your life to him? Because the scripture's answer is nothing's holding you back except you. Nothing's holding you back. There's not more you have to do. There's not more you have to know. And anybody in the room who's a Christian could tell you is that we have learned a bazillion times bazillion more things after coming to Christ than we knew before. There's nothing more that's needed Except understanding He gave His life for you and you want to give your life to Him. What's holding you back from doing something like that today? That you would give your life to Him and become a follower of Jesus just like you are reading about the Samaritans and just like you read about this Ethiopian eunuch. And the second picture. Perhaps you are a Christian. You have faith, you've believed, you were baptized, you've devoted yourself to following Him. But the words that Philip said to Simon feel very real. Your heart's not right with God. 
You are bound and chained in wickedness. Or in the gall of bitterness. You haven't been living the way you ought to live. Your heart's not true to the Lord anymore. I want you to see from that passage. Nothing's holding you back from coming back. There's no sin too big. There's no sin too great. And it doesn't even matter, like in Simon's case, perhaps you had false pretenses and other ideas. There's nothing keeping you from coming back with a right heart and serving him faithfully. Don't ever allow Satan to ever tempt you to tell you in your mind and in your heart, I'm too much of a sinner for God to forgive me and bring me back. Don't ever let those words into your head. The plan of God to save the world of sin was with the full knowledge that we are all a bunch of terrible people who are never going to get this right and he came and died anyway. And if you've blown it, what's holding you back from getting right with God? What's keeping you from getting right with him and getting your heart right? And the final picture. There's nothing holding you back from sharing your salvation. Are you amazed by these Christians? Persecution falls down on them hard. Christians are being dragged out of homes. They have to scatter from Jerusalem. And as they go, they don't keep quiet. They don't quit. They're not silenced. But they keep sharing the salvation of God. Nothing's holding you back from doing that. Sometimes we have the tendency to think, you know, I'm not a good speaker. I don't know enough. I'm not able to do those kinds of things. I really sincerely wish that I could transport you in time to 1998, to Fayetteville, Arkansas, when I gave my very first lesson in the training program there. When I left the training program, one of the elders that last night I was there came up to me and said, we didn't think you were going to make it. (laughs) You were bad. (laughs) Got up there to speak. Services started on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. and supposed to end at 7. I remember standing up there for my first time. It was 6.18 p.m. I thought I had this nice long sermon. And at 6.32, I said, let's stand and sing. And the song leader looked at me like, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) What are we doing for the next 30 minutes? You can share your story of salvation. You can be as afraid as I was and as terrible at it as I was and nervous about it as I still am. And all you have to do is say, let me tell you about how Jesus has changed my life. He can change yours too. What's holding you back? What's keeping you from salvation? What's keeping you from having a heart right with God? And what's keeping you is sharing the good news of Jesus to your friends 
and to your neighbors. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your astounding, amazing mercy and grace. And Lord, we have such encouragement from reading about these people who are found in this chapter. That Lord, you love the world that you're taking in outsiders like this eunuch. You love the world so much that you would take back Simon and allow him to repent in spite of all of his evil. That you love people to such a degree that you continue to be so patient and so loving. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for bearing with us in all of our sins. Lord, we feel like we can be bound in the chains of wickedness and our heart's not right and we fail you over and over again. Thank you for always having your arms open to us. Thank you for always taking us back. Thank you for always calling to us to turn back to you. And thank you for always forgiving us when we do. Lord, give us a a far greater zeal to serve you. A far greater strength in this salvation that you have given us. Give us courage to follow you faithfully, to share the story of how you've changed our lives. Lord, keep us from sin. Help us in our struggle against Satan. Help us to be the light that you want us to be. And help our hearts to always be pure before you. Lord, cleanse our hearts today. If there's any wickedness within them, cleanse us. Make us holy and pure before you. And Lord, help our hearts to then be so captured by you that we want to love you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I, I hope that in this lesson you'll see the picture that you're so captured by God's love that nothing holds you back. Wherever it is, wherever you are in that pendulum, we, we've, we're, you're somewhere on that pendulum. You either haven't come to Christ yet and you're, you're, you're like the unit and nothing's holding you back. Or maybe you've come to Christ and you, you realize that you haven't been what God has called you to be. Nothing's holding you back from getting right with God. And even if you think you're handling things okay, Nothing's been holding you back from proclaiming the good news of Jesus. If there's any way we can help you come to the Lord, we want you to do that today. Uh, You can talk to me, you can talk to Dan, or anyone here. And we'd love to share more of the good news of Jesus with you. Uh, If you're a Christian and you realize you need to get your life right, I hope today you're praying to God for repentance. And if you need our help in that, we're here to help you in that. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, that you're on that journey, you're you're beginning to believe and you're beginning to understand and you're ready to turn away from sin and be baptized, we have waters ready. Tricky curtains back here, but there's water back there. We can do that for you today. Just let us know. Why don't you come while we stand and while we sing.